Hi, this is Craig Valentine, host of Early to Rise Radio. Have you ever wanted to become wealthier, healthier, wiser, or just have more time to appreciate the finer things in life? On this show, we reveal what high performers are doing every day to be more successful without sacrificing their personal lives. Early to Rise Radio is sponsored by The Perfect Day Formula. Get your free copy of this game-changing success guide at freeperfectdaybook.com. Now let's get started with today's show. Stacey Copez, welcome back to the show. Why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, where you're from, and where you're living now? Okay, Stacey Copas from the accent. You can probably hear that I'm Australian. I live in Sydney, born and raised in Sydney. Um, and I am the founder of the Academy of Resilience, author of How to Be Resilient. And I, I help at the moment. I'm really I'm working a lot with with salespeople and helping them to be able to outperform their competitors through developing elite levels of resilience. Um, sort of a bit of an evolution on what I'd sort of been doing up until, you know, the previous 10 years had been more speaking more generally about resilience, particularly in the context of change, um, but mainly working with organizations. But um, I'm pretty excited at the moment to be able to be looking at being able to still work with organizations and and, and teams, but also to be able to do um, putting together some programs to be able to work um, uh, with with small groups of salespeople, which I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Well, you know, you're speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs and most entrepreneurs have to do some level of sales. So what what are what have been some of your biggest discoveries around the topic of resilience, which you know is kind of like the well, I'll let you define it actually. Uh, define resilience and then what have you learned in working with salespeople? What what do the successful people have that those that struggle don't have? Yeah, look, if we're looking at resilience, um, I have a bit of a different perspective on it to most. Um, I, I find that, unfortunately, resilience has become synonymous with just coping, which I feel just sets such a low bar. Um, and I feel there's an element of resilience that is around how do you cope? But I think that's base level. I think from that, I see resilience as how do we actually grow and learn and become stronger through being challenged. I also see it as a proactive strategy, whereas most times people think, well, okay, how, how do you deal with a setback as a reactive thing? Whereas I see resilience much like going to the gym where you go to the gym on a consistent basis and you repetitively do particular movements and over time you build strength. And so through the use of rituals and practices, Similarly to going to the gym, then you do those consistently over time and then you build strength so that when you do find yourself in a situation where, um, you know, you're challenged or something hasn't gone to plan, then it doesn't set you back as far as, you know, somebody that hasn't built those practices into their, into their daily rituals. Um, and I think from a, from a sales perspective, I think that there's 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 an element of you know building that proactively just to be consistently um, at you know at, at your peak um, when you when you're showing up for every every situation and I know one of my previous clients when I, I spoke for a national sales conference and it was a line that he said to me that's just stuck with me so much is he said you know I want to help them deal with adversity but also I want you to send them back out into the field with a little bit more air in their tires and there's that element of sales as well that you need to consistently have that energy and motivation and drive. So that's where I see that, you know, somebody that is practicing resilience on a consistent, you know, these practices on a consistent basis 
um, you know, they're going to have an advantage over somebody that's just going out there and pretty much, you know, slogging it out day to day, you know, perhaps dealing with those hits and, you know, getting set back further than somebody that has, you know, a higher base level of resilience because of the rituals and practices that they've done consistently. Yeah, got it. And that, that's actually a great segue into what we're going to focus on today, which isn't sales or necessarily resilience, but it is how to give up booze, how to stop drinking so much, which you know does require a high level of resilience. And it's a topic that you know I wanted to ask you about because you've now been 10 years alcohol free, right? Um, I'm eight. So eight. yeah. I'm, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But, well, we'll you know, have to postpone this till 2024 20, or five then. Uh, it's all good, but um, you know, 10, tens in sight. Um, and for me, I know that, you know, I can say with absolute certainty it's not something that I'll ever go back to um mm. after that. But um, and I think you're about to, you're about around the year now or yeah, you know, to- I totally forgot that uh, the year anniversary had passed. It was just a few weeks ago and it was November of 2021. I had a drink with my friend Jason Capital. It was just one single drink and I had a horrible, hor- horrible sleep. I looked at my aura ring stats and I said, ah, it's just not not worth it because then I heard this really great phrase, which is it's easier to be 100% in than 99% in and more effective too. And I was like, well, I may as well just give up all booze because the two drinks per month, you know, one drink twice a month, what was it doing for me? And so I just, um, you know, completely quit it. But, you know, we are going into when we're going to release this podcast, it's going to be the holiday season and people are going to need that resilience to beat the booze. So I'll just go a little bit off topic here and say, if people want to dive in to more of Stacy's story and her rituals of resilience, they can listen to episode 192 of Early to Rise Radio. This is actually episode 301. And is this the third time you've been on the show? It is the third. Yeah. Fantastic. It's it's awesome. I think we've been working together for four years, back for three. Um, And it's great because I think each time we've we've, we've spoken about, you know, very different stuff, which, um, which is great. And it's just, I love being able to be of of service to your listeners. So you live in Sydney, which definitely has a, you know, the the time that I've been there, the times that I've been there, you know, it's, it's a boozy city, you know, it's um, whether it's Australian football or rugby or, you know, just the beach barbecues, it tends to be a boozy city. So tell us a little bit about your history with booze in the city of uh, Sydney and then what triggered your transformation? Yeah, it's interesting. I think Australian culture in general, there is a drinking culture. It's, you know, you drink because the footy's on, you drink because it's Friday, you drink because you're celebrating, you drink because you're sad, you drink because insert excuse. That's yeah. pretty much Australian culture. Um, Canadian too, Canadian too, yeah, British and, and, and American. And it's, but it's also, a, I think also with Australian culture, there seems to be a more of a drink to get drunk culture sure. as well, not just, okay, let's have a few drinks. And I think that's where I've heard um, particularly, you know, in parts of Europe and stuff like that, then drinking's part of the culture, but not so much of a, you know, drink to, you know, drink to drunk sort of stage, um, yeah. which has been interesting. But look, I was, um, I grew up in Western Sydney um, and it was, you know, it was very, you know, low socioeconomic type, type area. Um, but also too, it was, um, I'd, I'd had, like I had an injury when I was 12 years old, 
broke my neck and drowned in a in a backyard swimming pool, ended up quadriplegic, needing a wheelchair for the rest of my life. So that was sort of heading into, you know, my secondary schooling, um, you know, heading into the teenage years. I think, you know, teenage years are awful as far as, you know, trying to find your identity and where you fit in and who you are and all that type of stuff. So I was, I was dealing with that. And then, you know, just this whole, you know, my whole, you know, body was different. Everything I thought I was going to do with my life, uh, you know, felt like I could never do again. So I was in a pretty dark spot. Um, but even just before I had my injury, I was starting to hang out with people that, you know, probably weren't the most desirables. And so I had my first drink of alcohol. I would have only been 12 or 13. And so from sort of 13 onwards, um, I was drinking you know, fairly regularly with my friends on weekends and, um, and, and drinking to get drunk, um, not just drinking because it was, you know, it was fun to the point where, you know, a bunch of teenagers with, you know, next to no money would, you know, go and get a bottle of rum and drink it straight through a straw just to try and get, you know, it's disgusting when you look back on it, but that was, that was where we're at. So I spent a lot of my, my teenage years, um, you know, drunk and also stoned. It was just, they were my escapes, my moments of artificial happiness, dealing with the, you know, the, the, the space that I found myself in. And I find, you know, I look back now and I realize that, you know, while physically I drowned once when I had the injury, but, you know, emotionally I was drowning every single day back then. So a lot of my drinking back then was, was around, it was a coping mechanism. Um, and then it just become very social. Um, but I also, I, I had a, I grew up in a family where there was a lot of drinking, um, the extended family, there was a lot of drinking. And so by the time I'd sort of gotten to 18 legal age of drinking in Australia is 18, um, and I'd done all the rounds of all the 18th birthday parties. I got to the point where I'd seen so much, particularly in my extended family, that I actually decided that I was going to give up drinking then. And I thought I didn't want to be like some of the people in my extended family. And so I decided I was going to stop drinking and I didn't actually touch alcohol at all for about five years. Um, so, you know, I drank when I shouldn't have. And then by the time I was legally able to drink, I was like, no, I'm over this. I don't want to be around. I don't want to do it anymore. And you know, my, my friends respected it. They, they knew that I was somebody that, you know, they, I was never anyone that was into peer pressure. It was, mm-hmm. I did things because I wanted to. Um, and, you know, they, they all respected that. Um, became the designated driver for, you know, a lot of the things. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until I think it was, you know, getting into, I must have been about 23, 24 at the time. And then I just, I just, I just sort of started, I'd have a drink when I went and saw a band or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. And then I sort of just started to, you know, started to drink more and more. I, I, I sort of came out of a long-term relationship and then I started going out, uh, you know, on a Friday night with all the 18, 19 year olds from work and drinking harder than I'd ever drunk before. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that was so, when you were about 24, 25 or yeah, older. Yeah. So, yeah. So mid, mid twenties there. Um, I also, I'd got gotten involved in politics at the time as well. And I think any of the there's a bit of a reputation around um, politics as well. There's a lot of social things and there was a lot of drinking involved in, you know, in those as well. So I'd sort of gone from not drinking at all um, to, you know, drinking on a regular basis to the point that my nickname amongst my work colleagues was Wino. Uh. So, yeah, it was um, it was pretty full on at that point in time. 
Well, let's go back to the first time you quit drinking. Uh, you said that there wasn't peer pressure, but obviously peer pressure, there's, there's not that many people that have the strength to withstand peer pressure at the age of 18. So when you, when you speak to anybody who's young about quitting drinking or even just resilience in general, what do you tell them? What do you tell young people about these topics? Yeah, the, the big thing is, is that, um, you know, it's it's not about trying to please anybody else. And that's all peer pressure ends up being, you know, you fall into peer pressure. It's all about pleasing somebody else. And you're also, you, you're giving giving up a sense of yourself, um, you know, and your own autonomy and your own self, a sense of direction. But it also comes down to that element of personal responsibility as well. And personal responsibility is such a huge you know, a huge value of mine. And I think it's something that's definitely lacking a lot these days and particularly in, in young people. Um, but it's also something that I know that you've talked about a lot too, since we've, um, we've been working together and it was something that I realized that I, I had done, um, myself was I just said that I don't drink. Um, so it comes down to that identity thing. It's not like I don't want to drink or, um, I can't drink or I'm not drinking tonight. It was just, I don't drink. And, you know, really just standing strong in that sense of self and sense of identity. Um, and it's incredible once you do that, that just the, the level of respect that you end up getting from people around you. And, and, and also often I find, um, you know, back then and even now, when I say I don't drink, people go, wow, like, you know, how do you do that? It's almost like you have a superpower and a lot of people actually end up you know, once they, you know, if you don't have the peer pressury people, I find most people actually really admire and respect, um, you know, the sense of strength and discipline and I think identity that it takes um, to do that and and to stand strong. Also, I think it's, it's, a, it's a lot of the time it's avoiding situations where, you know, you know, there's going to be a lot of that. I go to a, being a, being a speaker, I, you know, I have to go to a lot of black tie functions. I speak at a lot of things where, you know, a ticket price will include unlimited alcohol for, you know, five, six hours. And, you know, when I was in that stage in between, I'd be like, awesome. I, I'll drink that. I'll drink that much. That's, that, that's, that's worth the ticket price. Yeah. Um, whereas now I go, wow, I can go and meet great people and I'm out of there by nine 30 um, when everyone else is still kicking on drinking till 12. So I think it's avoiding situations where, um, where you know there's going to be a lot of drinking and especially drinking to it to the point of um, people getting drunk and, you know, it's just not fun to be around. So fast forward then in the year 25, you've got that kind of label put on you at work. What's the journey that you take there into your second, you know, stage of getting out of it? Oh, look, I, I drank pretty hardcore for, you know, it must have been close to 10 years then. Mm. Um, and just became part of my every day. I, I, I loved, I loved wine, um, became my thing. Um, you know, I used to, you know, I used to go out a lot. I used to have a lot of parties at my place. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I just, I, I drank a lot. I got to the point where I was, I was drinking every day. Um, and I was, you know, I, I would, you know, I'd drink, you know, a glass of wine with, with, with dinner every night. Um, and then, you know, on the weekends, I would drink a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. But I got to the point where by this time I was, um, I was married and I was living in, um, I was living in Adelaide. Um, and I sort of found that 
I was, I was, I was feeling foggy. I found that if I had even one glass of wine of a night, I felt really pathetic. And I just felt of an evening, I just, I didn't want to do anything. And I found even with that one glass of wine, when, when I woke up the next morning, I, I, I just, I just, I felt, I felt like I hadn't slept well. It was not like a hangover, but I just didn't feel at my sharpest. So the, for the first decision I, I actually made was to then only drink on a Friday and a Saturday. Mm-hmm. So no I school nights, up, as I say, I say, don't no, drink on exactly. school nights. Yeah, you say that, you say that too. Yeah. I didn't know if that was just an Aussie thing, but yeah, no school night drinking. And, um, and then what I did was I just started buying better wine, um, instead of drinking the everyday wine, I would, I, you know, I got a wine subscription and then I actually became to, I, I actually enjoyed it more. Um, mm-hmm. and if I went out, then, you know, I'd, I'd have a few extra drinks then, um, but yeah, so that I found that made a difference to me. Um, but the big one was is that um, I actually had found that you know I'd have one I'd have one glass of wine and then the next morning I'd wake up I'd go out to the kitchen and the wine bottle would be empty. So you know I'd sort of found that I didn't really didn't really notice until over time I was like okay so you know my my husband at the time was was sort of knocking off the rest of the wine. Oh, I see. Oh, on yeah. those on those sort of midweek things and. Um, yeah, and then you know what the big trigger was, and I, you know, I haven't really spoken a lot about it, is because um, most people thought I gave up drinking because at the time I'd gone back to elite athletics and I was training to try and qualify for the Paralympics. So most people thought, oh yeah, you're not drinking because it was because um, you know you were training and that sort of stuff. And I was like, yep, yeah, that was cool. Um, but what ended up happening is you know, a year after I, I got married, I actually found out that my my husband at the time actually had a very, very severe problem with alcohol. Mm. And, you know, that was um, incredibly confronting. And I just sort of thought, look, I'll be as supportive as I can um, to, you know, get some help for him. And the big part of that for me was, okay, I'm not, there's no, no alcohol, but not drinking in the house at all anymore. That's it. That was the the, the, the big part for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, I just sort of found that, um, the times that I did go out and drink, um, there was times I came home and I thought, oh my gosh, I annoyed myself. Then I must've annoyed everybody around me Yeah, just with, I don't know. I just, I talk a lot at the best of times, but you now I heard that, you know, I, I'd, I'd um, repeat myself a lot, which seems to be a common thing when people drink. Um, and yeah, so I just found that I actually was quite happy not drinking. Um, and then it was, you know, I might go, I might have went a month without drinking. And then it got to the point where it was, you know, September, what are we? It must have been 2014, September 2014. I, I had one big, um, um, a big event that I went to, a um, big black tie event that I'd flown up to Sydney for. And I had one glass of wine there. And then I had one glass of wine when I got back home with my best friend who'd come to visit. And then I thought, that's it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna call it. And um, yeah, I haven't had a drink since. So yeah, just over eight years now. What was the uh, amount of time between when you quit drinking on school nights and when you decided to call it? What was the evolution period? Um, it was a period of about. It would have been a year or two. So it okay. was definitely a gradual thing. But the other thing that came up in amongst there, and it was sort of around the same time that, you know, I realized that, you know, my, my, my ex-husband had had 
such a severe problem with alcohol um, that I, I started reading different mentors and different people I followed. And I found quite a few that I'd either never drunk alcohol in her entire life or had spoken a lot about, as you said, it's like it's that 100% rather than the 99%. It's like you you either you do or you don't. Um, and so once I started to see more and more people that I respected and admired that had said how important being sober was for just their sense of self but also their success in, in business and also in their personal relationships, then that gave me the confidence to go there, there's 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 some kind of demonstration of people that i admire that that said how how much of a difference it made in their life i remember speaking with lewis house probably 15 years ago and him saying he had never had a drop of alcohol and it just i mean it blew me away you know he's a college athlete and um, you know, some people go to college, you party at college, just like in all the movies. And, and I was just so blown away by it. And there's a few other people that I met in my life who have never had a drop of alcohol. And it's always just been mind boggling because I drew up, grew up uh, like you did in a drinking culture. And, you know, I was drinking probably regularly when I was 15. So it's, it's really fascinating when you hear those stories, it's a little less, um, amazing when you hear about, you know, someone who's super successful that doesn't drink alcohol, but, but even then most super successful people or a lot of successful people that I know, you know, are really the, the wine snob type people that are really into the, the wine and, and, um, and drink and, and, you know, they got total control over it. So that's totally fine. But I did want to ask you about your ex-husband. What was his journey? Did, did things ever turn up better for him or did, did, uh, it just get worse? Yeah, unfortunately it got worse. Um, he sort of had stopped drinking a couple of times or he'd said he'd stopped drinking a couple of times. Um, so that was like 2013. So we'd been married for a year at that point when I first found out. I was actually really concerned about his behaviour at the time. I, I was worried that he had like a brain tumour or that he had Parkinson's disease or something because he was like slurring, you know, uncoordinated, you know, it was really bad. And then when he said that, I was like, whoa, like I'm, I had no idea. Um, huh. So, and so, yeah, I, I supported, I said, look, I'll do whatever, you know, it takes to support you in this. Um, and so he'd stopped a couple of times. I think he only, you know, he went to one drug and alcohol counselor. I had a bad experience with a GP, um, but was somebody that, you know, was definitely not willing to dig into, you know, their, um, you know, their, you know, what was the, I guess the root cause, which from the outside, you know, I could see exactly what was going on. Um, but you know, I got told I wasn't his coach, um, which again, I've, I've learned along the way. You can't coach somebody that you, um, are either in a relationship, you can't coach someone that you're in a relationship with or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so we ended up, you know, living separated for quite a while. The rest of the world thought everything was great. Um, so it was very difficult being, I was part about the, some of the peak points in my business. I'd published my book. I was doing book launches. I was doing all this sort of stuff, but in the background, he was on a very, very steady decline. Um, so I decided that I was, you know, I was going to, I was going to leave. And, um, and by the time I left at the end of 2015, um, he was like, I, I looked at him and he, he, he looked like a prisoner of war to me. Like he'd become that, you know, he was, he was, he was that bad, you know, from someone that was very physically strong before, um, had declined, um, rapidly. Um, he was 13 years older than me as well. So, um, there was that, um, 
And, you know, I was concerned that, you know, he, I didn't think he was going to last very long. Um, But, and, and also it was just one of those things where you sort of think, how can, how can someone, you know, be so attached to an addiction to let, you know, their wife go, their house go, their son go, their job go, all of that sort of stuff. Um, And then unfortunately he actually died earlier this year. Um, So it was, you know, he would have been 56 um, so, you know, from, from, from that, it was just a, a decline and I didn't, I didn't keep in touch with him. It was one of those things that I just sort of thought, look, um, you know, it was, there was a lot of damage that was done in that process. Um, and it, you know, it took me a long time to recover from that as well. Um, you know, to the point I didn't even date for like nearly five years. So wow. it was, yeah, it was one of those, one of those big things, but I think seeing that and, um, you know, seeing how much it can, it, how destructive it can be. Um, I just think that people tread very lightly. I think they underestimate, they sort of think, oh, alcohol's, you know, it's so safe and it's so all of those things, but, you know, it can actually, it can destroy, absolutely destroy lives. And, um, you know, you even look at, you know, the, the, you know, the, the amount of people that present to ERs, around the world um, that's related to alcohol issues and car accidents and, you know, violence and injuries and all that sort of stuff, let alone, I guess, the, you know, the relationship toll that these things take. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty full on. Yeah. You, you almost would think like if alcohol was just discovered now, people wouldn't allow it to be illegal just because of the damage that it, it can do. But uh, the marketing that's behind it is certainly you know, it's not going away anytime soon, but let's, let's, yeah, let's shift the conversation now to people that are, you know, who would like to drink a little less, uh, don't want to make holiday binge drinking mistakes. What advice would you give people around the habits and the environments and just how to set them up for success in a busy holiday season? Think about someone who's got two parties a week and work functions, and they're just terrified of what alcohol and bad behavior might do to them and how, how exhausted it might leave them. What would you say to them? Yeah, I think it comes down people have got, to, have got to know themselves as well. I think they've got to know themselves, whether they do have the ability to say, okay, I'm going to have two and then I'm out. Um, and then some people know their, their personality is that, you know, if they have one, then it's just going to be open slather. Um, so I think that's a, that's a big thing. Um, another one is, is, is just, again, making sure that, um, you know, you eat, you know, you drink loads of water, you do those type of things. Um, and, and, and sometimes I find, and what I do a lot is I actually, I book a taxi or, you know, you book an Uber at a certain time so that you know that you've got a hard cutoff time. So it could be that you go to these parties, but rather than be the last person to leave, which, I, you know, I, that was always my thing. I was always the last person to leave um, that, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got a hard cutoff. So I think that, you know, that can be helpful. Um, but sometimes it can be, um, I think these days is great because there are so many, you know, um, wonderful, um, you know, non-alcoholic, um, you know, drinks that taste amazing, come in the same kind of bottles, you know, those type of things as well. Like back, you know, when I first started, you know, on this sober journey, really, it was, you know, I drank lime and soda. That was pretty much mm-hmm. it. Whereas now I can go out and I can get some amazing, you know, I can get an amazing, you know, non-alcoholic mojito or something like that. And, um, you know, it's still, it's still a nice experience to drink. Um, so I think that, 
that's a big thing. Again, know yourself. I think make decisions before you go. I think that's mm-hmm. a is 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 a really big one. Um, and then if you need to set yourself up, as I said, with a taxi or an Uber booked at a certain time to get yourself out of there. Um, yeah, I think that can that can make a big difference. And sometimes it could be um, you know, setting up you know, rewards and punishments as well. I think it was with any sort of goals, isn't it? Um, it could be, okay, well, you know, what's the reward you're going to give yourself at the end of it? Um, you know, and it could be that, um, you know, if you know that you're going to, you typically, you know, drink half a dozen drinks in a night and each of those drinks is going to be, you know, $10, $15, wherever you are, depending on what you drink, um, it could be, okay, well, what am I going to reward myself with, with that money that I would have spent on it as well? Um, because mm-hmm. I guess that's one thing we haven't spoken about is is the financial cost um, because, you know, drinking on a consistent basis, especially if you go out to a, if you go out to a high-end place, you know, you might be spending 15, 20 bucks, you know, a drink, yeah, um, you know, you have half a dozen, have half a dozen of those. It's like, you know, where, what else could you do with that money? That's going to be something that, um, that you're going to enjoy more rather than, okay. You, you might've that's five, thought yeah, you had that's 5, 000, if you do that once a week, that's $5,000 in a year. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Like what could you yeah. do with that? That's that's that could be a great holiday. Yeah. And I agree with you on the the options that are available now. And um, do you know Kate Vidulich? Did you ever speak at one of my events with her, see her speak? She's originally Australian, yes. but a, yeah. So yes. Kate's an Australian living in America and she, um, you know, she struggled a little bit with the alcohol and, and has been sober for over a year now. And her and I are, we bond over the um, Heineken Zeros, which, you know, if, if somebody is a beer fan, and you know has ever been like yeah Heineken's fine. Then Heineken Zero, it looks exactly like a Heineken regular bottle. You can take it to a party. You know, by the time everybody else has had two beers, no one's no one's looking at your label to see that you're drinking a non-alcoholic. And I mean, sometimes you have to cheat your way. You know, it's cheat your way thin. You got to cheat your way sober. Um, you know, so doing that and you know making a drink, but not putting the alcohol in it, ordering a drink and, you know, telling them to hold the vodka, you know, sometimes you just have to do those things, especially when someone's in a high pressure, high peer pressure environment. Like when, when I went through phases like you, where when I was young, I didn't drink for a couple of years or I drank very rarely. And I was out all the time with friends who were, you know, heavy binge drinkers and I had to cheat my way sober a lot of nights by faking that I was drinking and, you know, pouring, pouring a shot over my shoulder or something like that. But sometimes you just have to go to these extremes. And because most people are drunk, they don't notice it. The one thing that I'll add in addition to your Uber tip is that when I got, when I got into a certain phase, um, like you, I, I took a long time to phase out of the drinking, you know, it was, you know, it was, First, it was twice a week binge drinking, and then it was once a week binge drinking, and then it was once a week drinking, and then, you know, down to like once a week, a couple of drinks, and then eventually once a week, one one drink, and then twice a month, one drink, and then eventually zero. It took me a long time, like years and years and years to do that. But um, when I was in that phase of going from the binge to the drink, you know, a couple of drinks, I would just book things the next morning. So I would, you know, I would sign up for a course or I would promise another friend who didn't drink that I was going to meet them in a certain place at like eight o'clock in the morning, or I'd do strongman training at eight o'clock in the morning with some non-drinkers. And it was like, you can't show up hungover to any of those things. 
uh, you know, especially if you want to show up in the first place. And so booking things the next day was a good start. And then eventually I started getting some of my drinking friends to join me in, in booking things the next morning. And I was now I was spending quality time with the friends, the drinking friends that I didn't want to lose because I no longer was drinking. So those were a couple of things that helped me. Now, what are some of the other, th- I mean, it sounds like you didn't have to, f- you, you weren't fighting the booze, but for people that do fight the booze, what about the environments in which they put themselves in? Like, you know, someone who it just sounds like you didn't then keep a lot of booze around the house when you were quitting on the school nights. No, um, I, 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 I didn't have a lot. It was interesting though, because it, during that time I had a couple of overseas trips. And so there was a couple of duty free stints that were involved where it was like, Oh, look, I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to buy anything. But then I was like in you know the airport in Singapore and it was like, wow, I could get a liter of vodka for $10 US. Like, oh my gosh, what a bargain. Um, so there was that sort of stuff. And so I did have, I did actually end up having stuff there. Um, and, and then also like I, where I was working at the time, um, it was in the horticulture industry, but there was a lot of the main part of the horticulture that was, was, was the wine industry. So I was around alcohol, even at work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I used to get um, you know, I got a lot of gifts of alcohol. Also as a speaker, I don't know if you found it as well. Often a thank you gift that you'll get um, is, is a, could be a nice bottle of wine, sure. um, that type of thing as well. So, um, you know, I had all of those, but I think, yeah, big thing is, is, um, is, you know, if you know that you're vulnerable, um, then it's, it's removing the temptation. Um, I think that, you know, if it's not there, you can't have it. Um, I think these days it's difficult though, because it's like, you know, you can just call an Uber and get, you know, get, get some alcohol delivered and stuff like that. It's, um, you know, it's, there is that element. So I think it's, it's being very aware of, you know, what your vulnerabilities are. Um, and, and also just if, you know, if if someone has a, you know, knows that they're, they're having, they feel that there are definitely addiction issues involved with the alcohol, um, then I highly recommend looking out for, um, you know, for some different programs. And I think a lot of people um, are quite scared to, you know, look at something like AA. Um, What I find and what I've recommended to people that I've spoken to that have had challenges with alcohol is the first um, resource I point them to is actually Russell Brand, um, his book, Recovery. The audio book is incredible. Um, I listened to it, um, you know, I listened to it when I was many, many years sober, but I've recommended that as a resource to many, many people. And it's pretty much his version of the 12 step program, but I find that he's made it more accessible to people that, you know, I think I don't want to go and sit in a room of people and, and do that, or that they're really concerned about, you know, maybe the spiritual slash, you know, God aspect that's involved in a, you know, in a typical 12 step program. Um, and I went and saw, um, his, the, the, the live show of it, of recovery. And I just, I felt so inspired about how he's you know, somebody that's, um, you know, he uses a lot of humor as well, which is great. Um, but he's somebody that I was really excited about how accessible he's made recovery for people. That's fantastic. Well, speaking of books, which one of my books has been, would you say is most helpful for somebody that wants to give up booze? Um, I think Unstoppable would be a, 
would would be a good place to start. I think it's it's good because that just gives you know really good strategies. And I think a lot of the time, well, one of the biggest issues that people have when they're trying to cut out alcohol is anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 also too, like if someone is you know has a, a a really hardcore dependency on alcohol, like unfortunately my ex husband did, there are significant physical risks to their health if they actually just stop. Um, because the the withdrawal can actually cause seizures and it's pretty crazy. Um, but I think if somebody is defines that they do feel anxious, or sometimes people drink because they feel anxious, particularly in a social situation. And I find that was something for me personally. I found that um that I felt I thought that alcohol helped me to be more, you know, present and and can, you know, connect with people and be able to communicate better, which really it was an absolute hindrance to that. But I think, um, you know, if people were to, to have a look at, um, you know, unstoppable would be a great place to start. But then if you look at, I think that's a starting point, but then I think, you know, going back and looking at perfect week, perfect day formula, because one of the things is if, if alcohol has become part of your routine and part of your identity and part of your, you know, your structure, then you need to put new habits and new routines in place to actually support not drinking. Um, and as you said, things like scheduling something early on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, um, you know, doing things like that, even just things where, um, you know, someone might be like I was, you know, the, the glass of wine with dinner after dinner type of thing. Well, it's like, okay, what other things do I, you know, I schedule in that, um, that sort of fill that, fill that void. Um, I think with any sort of habit you've got to replace it with a more positive habit um otherwise again you're left with a void so how do you think that your husband ex-husband was able to hide his alcohol addiction for so long it was interesting and that was my first thing i i felt like an absolute idiot i thought look i've lived with this person for you know 6 years at that point in time and i'm like and that was the first question i asked him when i confronted him that night and he finally caved I said but where I, I just I don't see you drink um and he said that he, he hid everything in the laundry and I never went to the laundry and the next day I actually went to when he went to work I was working from home I had my own business by that point the first thing I did was I went into the laundry and I was just horrified by what I found you know it was just like all of these I, I what, what shocked me more than anything was like you know, why not throw out all this stuff? But there was all these empty casks of wine. Um, and then a lot of the stuff that I'd as I said, some of those duty-free things, some of the gifts that I'd been given. Um, I opened a cupboard where I had all those things in the in the laundry and um at closer inspection, all the bottles were still there, but they were all empty. Wow. So um, and then it's it's funny, as soon as you realize something, it's that old, you know, you connect the dots in reverse that I suddenly went, oh, my gosh, now I know why there was an obsession with, you know, doing the washing. There was all these kind of things, um, you know, and I, I thought, um, you know, as I said, I thought that he was actually sick because of some of his behaviour and, you know, he'd had a, you know, he, he took some painkillers at times, so I thought, oh, yeah, you know, it's that. So there's all of these kind of excuses and times where I thought that I'd smelt it and it was like, no, no, I'm just imagining it, you know, that type mm. of thing. So. Um, but it's, you know, when somebody that has addiction, they'll, they'll go to crazy levels to, to hide. Um, also they become very good at lying. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's incredibly sad, but I was pretty fortunate at the time. What helped me 
was I actually had somebody that worked with me um, that helped me with some of my daily stuff. Um, And she was 10 years in recovery herself. And so she was somebody that I was able to, you know, talk to about these things. And she was able to then share from her firsthand perspective of when she was in his situation. Thankfully, she got out of it. Um, But, you know, and she was, she was doing that with small children as well. And, you know, it's, um, you know, I was, I had situations with him where, you know, he was driving and, you know, that, you know, was clearly drunk. Um, some of the most terrifying experiences of my life. Um, but you're there, they, 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 there are really great lengths people go to, to hide these things. And as I said, they can be very convincing, um, because it's, it's something that's got such a grip on them that they, um, they become good at it. So it's fascinating. Um, just the last thing that, uh, you know, you and I are members of our friend Matt Smith's website and forum. And you mentioned that, uh, people often ask you if the young people today are, uh, as resilient as other generations. And I know this is a little bit off topic, but what, what do you tend to see? Cause you meet so many people with all your speeches and, and all the work that you do. Is there a, a drop off in resilience? And if so, why, and what can they do? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's something that, um, I've, I've seen a lot over time and it's, it's one of those things, you know, when you start to, you start to say those things, it's like, oh, you know, young people today. And, you know, yeah. we start to go, oh my gosh, should we become these old fuddy duddies? And you know, I'm in my mid, I'm in my, we're in our mid forties. Um, so it's, it's the type of thing that I sort of think, oh my gosh, when we were kids, um, but no, I've definitely seen it. And, um, what I, what I see the big part of it has been, is it's been this big pendulum swing um, where it, it came from, okay, you can't be too hard on kids. You've got to build their self-esteem. And then so it got to the point where it was like, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing, you can do anything. Um, you know, it became what I call the everyone gets a trophy generation yeah. where you just you get a reward for just showing up. Um, is I think it that also, way in Australia too? Yeah, 100%. Okay. Yeah, it's it's really bad. It's really bad. Um, and I've seen, because I guess there's been, you know, uh, yeah, it's since I was a teenager, it's like it's 30 years since I was a teenager now. Um, and um, I've seen, it's probably like, you know, there's a, there's a couple of generations now to be almost in between that and each one's gotten worse. And I think there's a number of factors too. So there was a, okay, we need to build kids self-esteem. Okay. I think, yep. Building kids self-esteem is great, but not at the expense of removing any kind of um, challenge, competition, disappointment. Um, then I, I've seen it in, in, you know, in, in friendship groups that they felt like, oh, I need to make sure that my child's got every opportunity. So what they end up doing is then suddenly, you know, a five-year-old is going to three different after-school classes. You know, they're learning an instrument, they're learning a sport, they're learning all these things. And what happens is, is that every moment of their time ends up becoming managed by their parents or all of their entertainment is then, you know, driven by their parents. They didn't, they don't have the opportunity to get bored. And that's one of the things that I I get asked in my corporate events all the time is like, what about my kids? And I'm like, one of the biggest things and gifts you can give your children to build resilience is, is, is allow them to be bored. Um, And then they become resourceful, things like that. The other big thing is technology. Smartphones has been probably the biggest detriment um, to a kid's resilience than any other thing out of there because they're 
they, you know, they, they constantly got their heads in a screen and that's how they, that's their first source of connection with other people. It's also their first source of their entertainment. So their brains are constantly being overstimulated. Um, and you know, then they're just, they've got, they've got no element of how can I be disappointed? Their parents buy them everything on their Christmas list. Their parents buy them, just buy them gifts throughout the week, just for no good reason. Um, the, the bar for praise and reward has been dropped so incredibly low that it's like, oh my gosh, you know, well done. Well done, little Timmy. You, you actually got out of bed this morning. Yeah. Like, you know, reward the kid for brushing you. Like they're rewarding their kid just for brushing their teeth. It's like, these are things that they need to just do, but also then that then they're too scared to, you know, to discipline or to, um, you know, to reprimand or to have boundaries in place. Um, and I've had so many conversations lately, particularly with people that have got boys seem to be like the sort of, you know, nine to 13 year old boys. Um, I even said to someone the other day, I said, you know, is there some kind of code that's been embedded into these kids with these online games they're playing that's just turned them into these horrible, disrespectful little, so they're behaving like little turds really. Um, but, and then what's happening is then they're, they're really addicted to these games and you try and take them away. Um, and you know, they're, they're, it's, they're, it's, it's, it's really, really bad. But, um, I think the other one is that they've, um, I don't know this happened, you know, probably 20 years ago, it started happening, um, in kids sports, they stopped keeping score because mm-hmm. they said, it's all about how you play the game, not who wins or loses, but, um, and then there would be like a, you know, in their schooling, they may not have got an actual mark on their report card or a rank. Um, they started removing all those things. But by nature, life is competitive. As you know, as soon as we start to get into an adult life, you know, we're competing for jobs, you're competing for a girlfriend, you're competing for all of these things. So if you go through life bringing up a child going, you're amazing, you're amazing, you can do anything. Um, but reality is, no, you're not going to be an astronaut. No, you're not going to be president. You know, you're not going to be all these things. Um, then what happens is the slightest disappointment in their adult life or even in their teenage years, like they crumble. And I've been asked to go into a lot of workplaces now. They're going, look, we're at our wits end with, um, with the young people that are coming into the workplace because they can't even cope with life. Yeah, someone will, the word that keeps getting thrown around so much these days is bullying. It's like they get asked to do something or given direction or some kind of feedback that is just a given. And it's like, no, you're bullying me. So it's, it's, it's such an interesting, an interesting thing. And, um, and I was talking to somebody yesterday who, you know, works with rugby coaches um, and, you know, I, I've seen it in sport a lot too, because I think we've got young, younger people in sport. I think that there's a lot of people, a lot of athletes these days that are, you know, probably not dealing with pressure as much as, um, as you know, previous generations would have either, because by nature of that upbringing, it's um, it's it's such a fascinating time. But I think that it's you know we really need to try and rein that back in again. So I think creating situations where young people get disappointed, bored, um, all those things where they need to be resourceful, where there needs to be an element of competition, is going to start to swing things back. I think. So what is it specifically about them and their, and the opportunity of being bored? It just forces them to be creative? Well, it forces them to be creative and it also forces them. um, Sometimes it could be to take risks, um, but also just that they need to find ways to occupy themselves. Um, And that's something that they just, they just can't do. Um, 
and just free play. That was a big one. Um, you know, a lot of the time these days, you know, even from little kids, they've got an iPad shoved in front of them. Um, they're not outside. They're not playing with the kids in their neighborhood. They're not going to a local park. You know, they, they might be in childcare. Um, and I'm not quite sure, you know, what happens in those environments anymore as far as play, but I think a lot of it's very structured. Um, but the element of, you know, having a kid, you know, go outside and play. I think there's also this people, there's an, a, a huge fear that, oh my gosh, you know, someone might take my kid or someone might do these things, but, you know, giving, giving kids, you know, those, those, those opportunities to actually, um, with no, with no rules, with no instruction, get a group of kids together and say, just do something. Um, that doesn't happen that much anymore, but it can be incredibly, incredibly, um, rewarding for their growth. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's certainly something that I have a much more vested interest in now and, uh, appreciate all of it, Stacy, what you've shared today with people on the resilience side, on the resilience for salespeople side and the steps on getting over the booze in your personal story, powerful story of how you were able to soldier through it has been incredible. Is there anything else that you want to leave people with today in, uh, in your life advice? Um, I think just um, particularly coming into the, the holiday season, um, the other one that we have too on on the you know even you know resilience and sometimes the thing that kind of drives people to drink is um, is is some of the dynamics that people have, um, particularly you know getting together with families and stuff like that. Um, so I think it's really important for people to um, to be conscious of. I think the the expectations and the mindset they take into some of these environments. Um, some people go in there just expecting that it's going to be awful and expecting there's going to be conflict and you know, pretty much you're setting yourself up for that. So mm-hmm. I think um, you know, being really conscious that going into the holiday period, that this it's a it's a it can be a high pressure time. It can be a, a source of conflict for a lot of people. Um, people feel as an obligation that they have to get together with people. Um, and, and sometimes like, you don't have to, like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things, but I think just being, um, going in there with a, with a, with, um, lose those expectations just because something has happened in the past. It doesn't mean that it's definitely going to happen again. Um, and I think that, um, being conscious of the interactions they have with people, um, you know, some of the, the, most negative people we have in our worlds are closest family and and closest friends that we spend holiday periods with. Um, so I think um, you know working on some of the practices for resilience so that you actually go in there, um, you know, not on a low, you go in there on a high, bring bring a bring bring a better energy to it, um, and it can be surprising that some people might actually meet you there rather than you going in there with such a low bar set. Um, and you know what, you're probably gonna you're going to run into what you expect in that situation. So I think gratitude's a big one. Um, it's like, you know, just, just gone through Thanksgiving period and stuff like that, but, you know, gratitude's a daily, gratitude's a daily thing. Um, so, you know, just look around and be grateful for everything we have, who we are, and, you know, that, you know, it's an absolute miracle that we're here at all. Um, and so making the most of every day, and that's something that um, is important to me, you know, don't take anything for granted. Um, but ultimately, you know, we can't change anything that's happened in the past, but we can change what we do now and what we do next. And big theme of mine right now is now and next. That's my, that's my focus. I love it. I love it. And, uh, or, you know, we're here for a good time, not a long time. And so everybody makes sure to 
really, um, I think one of the things that you said about the the drinking was the preparation in advance and that we are, if we're not prepared, we are really going to default to bad behaviors. And, you know, that might be not eating before you go to an event. And the next thing you know, you have a few drinks and you have an absolute horrible stomach ache the next day because you weren't prepared. And if you're prepared for, for to uh, to go in with a positive attitude, be optimistic, meet people where you want to meet people, and you know support your environment, you'll have a good time even if you don't drink. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a long, long time that you stay out. You can go home early and wake up and have an amazing next day. So, Stacy, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, your story is so powerful. You know, another aspect of your story is so powerful. Last thing is, where can people get your book? And what is what is it called? So, the book is How to Be Resilient, the blueprint for getting results when things don't go to plan. Um, and you can buy that from any online online bookstore or your local bookstore. Just pop your head in and, and um, get them to get it in. Um, or if you wanted to get an audio copy or an ebook copy, you can go to howtoberesilient.com. Did you did you read it? I did. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I did. Um, it was it was interesting though because it was like I was um, there was a lot of stuff in there that I was. Uh, Two things, I think, um, so, so much like, oh, my gosh, I've, grown, I've moved on so much from this part of my life. And then there's the other element of, because um, I wrote it when I was still married and before oh, all the stuff had sort of yeah, yeah. Um, had, had happened. And then also, too, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I actually put this together. I'm really proud of this. So Yeah, good. Um, yeah. So, um, but, yeah, as I said, now and next, that's the theme. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And uh, well, first of all, or last of all, I would like to say thank you for getting up so early in the morning uh, in Sydney to do this podcast. I know that uh, it is sun's probably not up there and you brought the energy and you delivered great value. So thank you so much, Stacey. You're welcome. It's all about early to rise, isn't it? So Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, everybody, make sure to implement this and have a low booze uh, low regret holiday season. Absolutely make it your best. Stacy, thanks so much. Looking forward to having you on a fourth time very soon. And everybody, we'll talk to you soon.